We're going to be in 1 Samuel today. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. Little departure today if you're just visiting us for the first time. Uh, service can be a little different today. It, it, it's not normally like this. So uh, if it's great, it was my idea. If it was, it's horrible, it's Cody's idea. So no. Just a little caveat there. By the way, if you're new, just a, just a little plug, if you're new, we would love to get to know you. There's a visitor's card in the seat back pocket in front of you. If you want to take the time to fill that out and drop it in one of the giving boxes, we would love to give you a call and answer any questions you have and just get to know you. So, uh, so please know that. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to talk about ventures in faith today. What does it mean to take a venture of, a venture of faith? What is a venture of faith? And as you're, uh, some of you still making your way there, I'll just tell you... Uh, uh, you, you may recall uh, a couple of years ago when we were starting the book of Mark, I told you about a guy named Larry Walters, known as Lawn Chair Larry. Uh, in July uh, 1982, Lawn Chair Larry was a 33-year-old man from San Pedro. He went down to his local Army-Navy surplus store, and, uh, and he bought 45 used weather balloons. And, uh, and so he, he carted them home, and uh, he and his buddies connected these balloons to, to a lawn chair, and they filled them up with helium. Larry had the bright idea that he wanted to go for a ride and fly over the neighborhood. So he took along a six-pack of beer, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and a BB gun, figuring that he would just shoot the balloons out one by one when he was ready to come down from his little jaunt around the neighborhood. Uh, And uh, when they untied him, to his amazement, he shot straight up into the air three miles. Three miles straight up into the air. This is a true story. Uh, And uh, he went straight into the the flight pattern of Long Beach International Airport. Shut down flights from across the country uh, as he's terrified holding onto this chair. After he got up there, he was afraid to shoot any of the balloons out because he thought he'd plummet to his death. So, so he just hung on for dear life, and, and so this becomes a media circus. It's on all the news channels. Everybody's following him. Eventually, he lands. He's swarmed by police. They take him into custody, and of course, he's swarmed by newspaper reporter or television reporters. Uh, he's, you know, on all the, the broadcasts here, made it just in time for the evening news broadcast, and so they surrounded him. They managed to ask him three questions before we, he was unceremoniously carted off to jail, and so they said, Larry, first question, were you scared? I said, yeah, I was terrified. Uh, second question, Larry, uh, would you do it again? <laughs> not a chance. I would not do this again. That was the answer to the second question. Third question, the money question. He said, Larry, why did you do it? And his answer, because a man can't just sit around. That was his answer to this question. Now, here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we meet Jonathan. Jonathan's a young man who would have been fast friends uh, with lawn chair Larry. Uh, Jonathan had this same attitude. Man, you can't just sit around. And because Jonathan had that attitude, that that a man can't just sit around, God used him incredibly to save the nation of Israel. And if you haven't figured it out today, the big idea, the big get of the message today is that you can't just sit around as a Christian. You can't just sit around. You're either in the game or you're not. Uh, And so with that in mind, we, uh, we read now, 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. 
the Philistines being the sworn enemies of Israel and encamped now against Israel. In fact, they, are, they, they have 30,000 chariots that are, that are mobilized against Israel. They have uh, 6,000 horsemen, uh, and they have uh, an, an innumerable number of soldiers. This, these are who now are, are surrounding uh, the, the, the nation of Israel, the forces of Israel. And so Jonathan says, hey, let's, let's go over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Very significant. We'll come back to that. Verse 2, and Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, uh, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name on one was Boses, and the name on the other was Senna. Uh, The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, uh, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Incredibly strong uh, understanding there of faith. Hey, look, if God be for us, who be against us? Uh, one man and God makes the majority. And this is what he's articulating. He's like, hey, if, if, doesn't matter if we got 10,000, 100,000, or one. If God, if God wants to do this, God can do it. Incredible faith that he articulates here. Verse 7, so his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. And then Jonathan, Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over these men and we will show ourselves to them. Verse 9, if they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. Very significant, and we'll come back to that. Verse 11, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. We learn in chapter 13 that when these forces came against Israel after Jonathan had led another successful uh, military battle against the Philistines, that's when they sent 30,000 chariots. That's when they sent 6,000 horsemen. That's when they sent a an innumerable multitude of soldiers against Israel. And when the Israeli forces saw that, they scattered. Everybody ran. And, and the chapter 13, in, in chapter 13, it tells us that they, they hid themselves in the holes of the ground. They hid themselves in the rocks of the hill. They ran away to their safe uh, havens, you know, the towns that were far away. So they scattered. And this is what this is. It, these are what the Philistines are saying here. Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Verse 12, then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they said, come up to us and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees. He couldn't wait. I love the visual picture of that. 
I mean, he's going against these innumerable forces. The hill is so steep that he's got to climb up on his hands and knees. And not only is he going into a battle where he's outnumbered, but, you know, he's got to climb up on his hands and knees to get there. And just this picture of dedication and commitment to the will and the calling of God. And then, so here he is. He climbs up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. Uh, that first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 uh, men within about half an acre of land. Now, I'm going to paraphrase the, the next several verses for you, but basically what happens is that as Jonathan and his armor bearer are leading this charge, and as they are being used to the Lord to, to attack the Philistines, God brings this, this great confusion and this terror into the camp of the Philistines. And so now you have this huge overwhelming force within the enemy being now uh, overwhelmed, and now they turn and they start fighting themselves. Uh, and so God begins to, do, to propagate this route against this overwhelming enemy that, that Israel's facing because of the faith of one man in his armor bearer. So there they are, they're doing this thing, and then Saul and all of his forces, they look and they see what's going on, and they go, oh, wait a minute, there, there's something going on over there. They don't even have a clue, and they're like, hey, what's going on over there? Let's, let's take the role, see who's gone out from us, and they figure out it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Now, at this point, you know, Saul can think back to what happened just previous to that. Again, we read in chapter 13 that Jonathan had led another successful charge. And when he led that successful charge, by the way, Saul took credit for it. Uh, you read chapter 13, Jonathan does the, it, it orchestrates this brilliant military victory, and Saul blows the trumpet. Saul's the guy saying, hey, you know, check this out. You know, he didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, but, uh, so, you know, here this is happening and, and you know what happens in their heart. I mean, Saul's thinking, oh, it's Jonathan and his arm break. They've, they got a great track record. Uh, okay, let's join them. And that's basically what happens. So he says, Hey, let's go. You know, they, they wouldn't fight against the enemy. They're quaking, they're hiding, they're in their, their safe place, but oh no, Hey, now that we know it's Jonathan and they got like stuff going, okay, let's go now. So they go in and they engage the battle. And, and basically, verse 23 sums it up. It says, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to, to Beth-Avon. So significant stuff here. And again, the big idea of the message is that you can't just sit around. If you're taking notes, uh, I just want to draw, there's a lot we can draw from this. I just want to highlight a few things. First of all, if you're taking notes, write this down. We must decide if we will be a person who's going to sit around if we're going to be a person who's going to venture out in faith. You have to decide, what are you going to be? Are you going to be somebody who sits around, or are you going to be somebody that ventures out in faith? It's been said that your life is a gift from God, but what you do with it is your gift back to God. Uh, and, and so here we go. Uh, you know, Jonathan, he, he goes on this 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 mission of faith. He feels prompted by the, the, the Holy Spirit, go and do this thing. And I, I just want to, again, draw your attention there back in verse one, where it tells us that he did not tell his father. Why didn't he tell his father? This is hugely significant here. You know, because in deciding if we're going to be somebody who just sits around or if we're going to be somebody who engages our faith, well, Jonathan, feeling led to engage in his faith, he didn't want to tell his father why. Because his father is a guy that just sits around. 
As a matter of fact, we read in verse 2 that Saul was sitting. <laughs> that, 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 it was right there. Jonathan feels led to go. And verse 2, and Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. Really significant, by the way. He's in the outskirts of Gibeah. Do you know where Gibeah is? This is the land that when the Israelites crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, they settled in Gibeah. Okay, and so what it represents here for for Saul and for those that are following him, this is a past victory. Okay, this is one of those profound past victories that they had in their faith and their 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 following after God. And see, a lot of us as Christians, we 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 set out and we have these these monuments in our life where I've I've had this spiritual victory. And this is the ground where now I've settled in, this place of victory. But God doesn't want us to stay there. God wants us to move onward in our life. He wants us to execute our faith in in a continual pursuit after Him. The Bible says that that we are to, to go from faith to faith. The Bible says that whatever is not of faith is sin. And so God does not want you to settle. He does not want you to stagnate. And here what, Paul, or what Saul has done is that faced now with this overwhelming enemy, he falls back to that place of past victory, and this is his safe haven. This is where he hides. And I wonder if any of us are hiding today. And maybe we go back to that place of safety and security, that place that once represented to us a great spiritual victory, but that God would say, don't stay there. You still have to go in and possess the land. There's still enemies that you have to, to conquer. And I would ask you, are, are you like Saul today? Or have you chosen to fall back into that safe place where, where, you, where you will hide, where you will camp out? And so for Jonathan, he's like, I don't want to tell my dad because he's a guy that's just sitting around. He's a guy that won't go and engage the the, the fight. And and as a matter of fact, the last time I went and I engaged the fight, he took credit for it. So I'm not going to tell him. I'm just going to go do this thing. I'm going to execute my faith. And uh, and I'm not going to tell the person that's going to pull me down, that's going to prevent me from, from executing what God has called me to do. Again, we have to decide if we're going to be a person who just sits around or if we're going to be a person who ventures out in faith. I remember years ago, I uh, just brand new in the ministry, and uh, one of our church members asked me to do a funeral for his mother. Uh, and, uh, and so what I like to do when I'm going to do a funeral, I want to go and I meet with the family ahead of time, especially when I don't know the decedent, because I think it's in poor taste to do a funeral and, and, you know, come across like, you know, you knew the person when you didn't. Uh, and I think it's in poor taste not to take the time to at least help the family to remember, uh, their loved one. And if I don't, if I don't spend time just saying, tell me about them, it's hard for me to, to, to craft that and to, to have a service where, you know, we actually can remember this person and, and celebrate who they were and, and then point the people Godward, which is the whole idea of a, a funeral service. You want to be able to say, let's put this in context. What does all this mean in the bigger picture? So I'm meeting with this family for this pre, pre-service interview. I do it the week before. And it, it was depressing. Man, they didn't give me anything to work with whatsoever. This, this woman... Well, here's the deal. She spent her life watching television and shopping. That's all she did. 
And when I say that's all she did, that's all she did. She was an absentee mother. She was an absentee grandmother. Uh, she lived her life completely self-centered and self-absorbed. And, and worse, she didn't even have a saving faith in Christ. So I, now not only do I not have anything to work with in terms of crafting a service for her to, to say here's who she was, she loved television and she loved to shop. That's a, that's a pretty sad, you know, thing to, to memorialize somebody with. And I couldn't even, like, you know, spin and, and, and make something good out of it to be by focusing on the hope that she had because she didn't have any hope. She never surrendered her life to Christ. So, so here I am. I got to pull a rabbit out of the hat somehow, and, and I tried. But, you know, here's the thing. The funeral was the most depressing funeral I've ever been to. There were six people at her funeral, and I was one of them. This woman had nothing to show for her life. Big empty. Nothing. Because she sat around. She was somebody who just spent her life just sitting around. She, she did nothing. Now, that same year, I had the opportunity to do a funeral service for a good friend of mine. A man by the name of Bill Sotelo. Bill Sotelo served in Vietnam. He was a decorated police officer. He coached kids sports. He taught Bible studies in his home. Uh, He led a couple of men's ministries. He ran our resource ministry at the church. He led many people to the Lord himself. Uh, He was always reaching out to help others. Uh, and right before he died, the Lord did something really gracious to me. Uh, we were at church, and I was looking out. We had, you know, storefront glass just like this. And, and I saw Bill walking by one day. And, I, and, the, and it was a Sunday morning, and, and I was just thinking, man, I admire that guy. And the Lord spoke to my heart, and he said, go tell him. And in fact, God told me, he's not going to be around very long. Go tell him. Bill was a young man. And I just, I immediately, I walked outside. I just said, Bill... I just want to let you know how much I love you and just how much I admire you. You just, you always give it. And so I was able to tell him everything that I was thinking. Two weeks later, he died. He had this massive stroke and the Lord just took him. And I was so grateful that the Lord had given me uh, the thing to say to, to him face to face. But, but the point is, is that he had spent his life. This was a man who didn't sit around. And so the contrast was stark. When, when I d- officiated his funeral... There were hundreds of people at Bill's funeral. The people at, at the, the place where we were doing it, because he was a vet, we did it at the, the military ceremony there, or the, the cemetery, and, and they only give you a certain amount of time. And, and they were pushing us out because people had so much to say about who Bill was and how he had been used by God in profound ways. And I ask you the question, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? What's, what, is, what are people going to say about you after you're gone. Uh, You know, if you were to be taken suddenly today and you go and you stand before the Lord, would he say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or would his word be to you, depart from me, I never knew you. You knew the young and the restless and you knew the repeat episodes of the A-team and you could quote all the lines from Get Smart, but... You know what? You never did anything with your life. There's a well-worn hole in the couch of your life, and that's where you sat. Sobering thing. Now, when we talk about stepping out in a venture of faith, what is that? Because we read our example here, Jonathan, he, his venture of faith was go kill some Philistines. You're like, well, I'm not going to go kill somebody in a venture of faith, although you might want to. Uh, you know, what is a venture of faith? Well, it looks different. A venture of faith looks different for every single one of us. It depends on God's calling on your life. 
So some of you, your venture of faith might be uh, that, you know, you just commit to a regular plan of discipleship in your life. That's a venture of faith. Some of you remember the, the message from last week, a very difficult message that we need, we need to cut off some relationships that are unhealthy for us. And maybe that's your venture of faith. Maybe you're, you're saying, well, I, I, these are my friends, man. We, we hang out. These are the guys that I've always hung out with. We have a few beers after work. And, you know, this is, and I'm, I'm supposed to, to cut off these relationships because they're not leading me in a, in a, in a Godward kind of way. And now I'm, I'm at this crisis of belief. And do I keep this old circle of friends? Do I establish these new Christian friends? And what if my new Christian friends are boring? And, and, and what, you know, and maybe that's your venture of faith. Maybe the new venture of faith is to be able to say, no, I need to cut off those things that are unhealthy. Maybe your venture of faith is to recognize, hey, I've been sitting in the pew for a lot of years. And God's called me to make disciples. And so maybe my responsibility is to open my home and begin to welcome people in for a Bible study, make disciples. Or maybe my responsibility is to to put myself out there and and tell the leadership of the church, hey, you know what? I'm ready to disciple somebody one-on-one. If you've got somebody you want to put them with with a more mature Christian, God's prompting my heart and I just want to make myself available. I don't know what your venture of faith is. Here's the deal. I do know that the Holy Spirit's speaking to some of you right now. And I know that maybe you're, th- you're, you're sitting there, some of you are going, don't say it. Don't say it. Please don't say it. I don't have to. The Holy Spirit's telling you right now what your venture of faith is. And, and I think that, that all of us need to come to that place where we recognize, all right, what is the venture of faith that God's called me to and what am I going to do with it? Second thing I want you to notice if you're taking notes here is that successful ventures of faith depend on faithful leaders and they depend on faithful followers. Successful ventures of faith depend on faithful leaders and they depend on faithful followers. You see, in our text, we see that Jonathan is felt, feels led of the Lord to do this and so he responds and he leads effectively. And now he was only effective because he had an armor bearer who said to him, I'm with you. I got your back. I'm on your six, man. You're going, I'm going. And, and the text reads so very clearly that the enemy fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer ran him through. What happened during this, this time was that there weren't a lot of weapons that were available to the Israeli army. As a matter of fact, the only people who actually had uh, spears and, and swords were Jonathan and Saul. I mean, that's, that's the way it worked out. I mean, the, the, the enemies, they had the, you know, all the blacksmiths and, the, and they would fashion all the, the weapons and they saw to it that, the, that the, the Israelites didn't have a lot of weapons. And so, so very significant, the armor bearer would carry the armor. They would carry this, the sword on behalf of, uh, you know, the person that they were assigned to. And so here, you know, such a critical thing. Again, ventures of faith, they depend on, on faithful leaders and they be, depend on faithful servers, faithful armor bearers, faithful followers. Now, you, again, it stands to reason you got to understand what God's called you to do. And this is a no brainer for those of you that married men. Guess what your role is? You're called to lead. And ladies, you're called to follow. And this isn't always easy. I know. I talk to people frequently, you know, and, and you know, I'll give you one perspective. I talk to the guy, and the guy's like, man, my wife just won't follow me. And the first thing I ask is, are you worthy of being followed? 
I mean, seriously, if, if you're telling your wife that, you know, you want to spend your life savings on your beer can collection, uh, then, you know, she ain't going to follow you, you know? And, and there's some, some guys that they, they want their wives to follow them, but they're not going in a godly direction. And can I just say, men, that, that you make it really hard for your wives to follow you sometimes when, when you don't give heed to, to who you are and who you're called to, to be? And, and so, so I would say, listen, you need to be a person because as I look at Jonathan, there's several things I see about him. Number one, he was confident in God's calling. He was absolutely confident. Secondly, he was clear in articulating the vision that God had given to him. Very clear in his directions to his armor bearer. And thirdly, he was very clear and concise in his instructions to his armor bearer. And so for those of you that are called to lead, I would say, take a page out of Jonathan's book and go, hey, am I confident in what God's called me to do? Am I clear in articulating this vision to my wife or to whoever it is I'm leading? And thirdly, am I clear and concise in the instructions that I give to them? Look, these are my expectations of you. This is where we're going, and this is what I want you to do. See, guys and husbands, if you would do this, man, you would make things so much easier for your wives to submit to you. Because people, they, they, they want to follow you. They really do. But if you don't follow these steps, then it makes it very difficult for them to follow. And for those of you that are called to follow, can I just say, please take a look at what the armor bearer did. Because for Jonathan to lead effectively, he had to have that armor bearer say to him, I'm with you. Can you imagine if the armor bearer had said, wait, well, hold on. I'm not with you, man. I think that's a bad idea. And they had been arguing with him. He never would have been able <clears throat> to do the thing that, that which God had called him to do. Can you also take note of that, that Jonathan, he climbed up on his hands and knees. And the armor bearer at that point could have said, whoa, whoa, whoa amen. I'm out. And again, I didn't know there were going to be hands and knees involved here. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's more than I bargained on. No, he didn't do that. He faithfully said, where you go, I go. I'm with you. I'm going. And, you know, and I, I've used the, the analogy before and told you about it, but for me, you know, Pastor Cody just saying, I'm with you. I'm committed. You're called. I see it. I'm called to support you. And, and I could never have done what God had called me to do had God not given to me a man who was a faithful armor bearer. And I, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. This is, this is an amazing thing. Success in every venture of faith depends on both. It depends on faithful leaders and it depends on faithful armor bearers. We'll come back to that uh, in, in a minute. Um, third point, last point, true ventures of faith are always yielded to God's sovereign will. True ventures of faith are always yielded to God's sovereign will. And, and I just want you to take note that how Jonathan does this, he feels led of the Holy Spirit to say, hey, this is what God's called us to do. And his response then after that is to say, okay, not only is this what God's calling us to do, but, but I'm going to test that by saying, Lord, you show me. And, and we see it in verses 9 and 10. I'll repeat it for you. He says to his, sword, to his arm bearer, if they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. Verse 10, but... If they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. 
And I would just tell you this, that, that uh, a, a venture of faith is not some harebrained thing where you put God to the test. That's not what it is. A venture of faith is when you feel the Holy Spirit of God prompting you in a certain way and you move in that direction, but as you move in that direction, you say, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. So as I'm moving in this direction, Lord, I want you to confirm what your good and perfect will is in my life. Now, let me illustrate this point with a a page of recent history for us at Reliance Church. Uh, Two and a half years ago, in March of 2008, we signed our lease for this space. And it was a huge venture of faith. At that time, we said, Lord, you know, this is a, this, I I brought all of the the church together. Um, And just to give you an idea, they all fit, they all fit in Bob and, and Gloria's living room. Uh, so I brought the whole church together in, in a living room, which tells you how big we were at the time. We had less than 100 people. We counted everybody. We counted women. We counted children. If you were pregnant, we counted you twice. I mean, you know, and so we had, we had just under 100 people in the church when we signed the lease on this space. I'm not kidding. So <laughs> we got two people right there. Uh, so, so we had under 100 people, and we signed the lease on this space. And, and at the time, we thought, oh, we, we have five years here, you know? And then God began to do what God does. He added to the church daily such as should be saved, people being baptized, people being saved, lives are being changed uh, to the glory of God. He's doing a work in our midst. And so what happened was we grew sixfold in the ensuing two years. And so we saw the writing on the wall. We weren't going to last here for five years. And so we, and was, what we started to do then was to search for a, for a building. And you guys know, we've tried to let you involve, hey, you know, here's what's going on. And, uh, and so uh, in, in the search, we found a church building. And, uh, and so we started to negotiate to purchase that church building. And that was, that was a little over a year ago. We've been in negotiations with them for about a year. And... Uh, during that time, we reached several agreements with the church uh, to buy it, um, to lease it, to lease to buy. We've executed two signed leases with them. We even gave them $14,000 deposit money on our last lease. Every time we thought we had a final deal on this building, uh, and every time we thought we had a final deal, they changed the terms in the 11th hour. And, uh, and so complicating all this during this time, the owners of this building lost their building. It was, they, they stopped making the payments. The bank foreclosed. It's funny how that works. You don't pay. The bank forecloses, take the building back. So we didn't know what was going to happen here. We, so meanwhile, we're looking to try to negotiate a lease in another place. We're trying to negotiate a lease here. Long story. Bottom line is we renegotiate a short-term lease here based on the assurances that we have with this church that we're working with. Yes, we have a deal. It's in place. So... A year into this, a few weeks ago, we thought we had everything nailed down. And you guys know, I came before you, I said, hey, if this isn't the Lord's will, we want the Lord to shut the door. I don't want to put us in debt for something that we've manufactured. Just because we can do it doesn't mean that we should do it. Uh, and so, you know, like Jonathan, I'm just saying, Lord, you know, get, we're going to move in this direction, but you need to confirm it. And, and I'm not going to hold on to this thing. I'm just going to open-handedly say, Lord, we're moving in this direction. And if this is your will, then, then, then we'll do it. So 
Uh, we thought we had a final agreement. It was a five-year lease-to-purchase agreement, um, and, uh, and it was all set up. It would have cost us $36,000 a year more than our current lease in the first year, $48,000 a year more in our second year than in our current lease. Uh, I go through all the details, but the bottom line is the fifth year it would have cost us almost $100,000 a year more than what we pay in our lease space here. Now, that's a lot of money, and you guys know me. I'm, uh, that, that kind of stuff keeps me up at night. Um, I don't like to spend God's money uh, frivolously. Not only that, we're going to have to put you know, seventy-five dollars to $100,000 of, of improvements into this building. And so I, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of fasting and praying, and basically the place that I got to was this. I said, Lord, uh, you know, I can see the growth. I can see what you've done. I can see that if we go into this building, you know, I know from, from past experience and here in this church and in past experience, my other church experience, just what you will do. I can do the math. I can see that we can afford this ultimately or we should be able to afford this. But man, it makes me uncomfortable. So I'm praying, fasting, Lord, if this isn't your will, shut the door. I've shared that with you guys. Pray for the Lord's will. That's all we want. So in the 11th hour, they changed the agreement again. And they basically told us this. They said, look, um, uh, if we'll go ahead and do this agreement with you guys, but during the lease portion of, of, of your buying this, if somebody else comes in and wants to buy it, you're out. I'm like, that's a deal killer right there. I'm not going to put $100,000 of improvements into this building and then be out on the street. That's not going to work for us. The exclamation point on all of this is that we discovered mold in the building in the children's ministry portion of the building. And I'm thinking, you know, if it's taken me a year to negotiate a lease purchase on this thing, what's going to be involved in, uh, you know, trying to mitigate mold issues in our, our, our children's ministry area? I'm, I'm not going to put our, the health of our kids up to a vote. Just not going to do that. So, so two weeks ago, I instructed Scott Losey, one of our elders who's, who's negotiating all this. Um, I said, tell them, God bless you we're out. We withdraw our offer. And so that's what we did. On the very day that we withdrew our offer, uh, we were contacted by Linfield Christian School. And they communicated to us that their facility is available for us to lease. Uh, We've got an incredible relationship with them. Uh, We've known them for over the years. Several of their teachers attend here. Uh, And so... um, they're super excited about this. Rather than describe Linfield to you, I think a picture says a thousand words. So, uh, so let me do this. Let me, uh, let me just take you on a quick tour of it, okay? All right, so uh, let me recap. We've signed a lease. It's ultimately going to save us uh, $12,000 a year. So we're not talking about $36,000 a year more, forty. $8,000 a year more, $100,000 a year more as the lease progresses. I feel really good about that. Um, we're going into, a, we're in the midst of and, and experience difficult financial times. I don't feel right about, uh, you know, so many people are losing homes and jobs and we're going to spend, you know, an exorbitant amount on trying to buy a building. I'd rather invest in making disciples than invest in making a mortgage payment. So, so I feel really good about this financially. It's a, it's a good decision. It's, uh, it quadruples all of our space, as I said, so I feel good about it for that reason as well. Um, it's a done deal. The lease is signed. We start services on January 9th 
Um, I did it that way because the first Sunday in January is still essentially uh, New Year's weekend, and I, I just wanted to get past all the hecticness of the holidays before we start this. So January 9th, uh, we're going to go with two services. We can fit everybody in one, uh, but I want to be able to uh, take care of those that are volunteering in our children's ministry and parking ministry and so on, that they can serve one service and attend another. Uh, and, uh, and so we're going to go with two services. Uh, the service times are going to be 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. That means we're going to eliminate the 8 a.m. service. Uh, you can sleep in for an extra hour, uh, but uh, 9 a.m. My hope is um, <clears throat> that, uh, and I'll be encouraging those in second and third service to, uh, you know, to make a, a move here, because with all of you going into the first service, then you know, it would be nice to have them evened out. So 9 a.m., 11 a.m., um, what does this mean to our weekly operations? We're going to keep this facility... Uh, and uh, we're going to continue to offer uh, our midweek stuff, and, and this is going to allow us to maintain our ongoing presence here in the community. So Awana is going to continue here on site. Uh, youth group for a time is going to continue here on site. Uh, Kyle wants to get on the, cam- the high school campus so we can begin making inroads and reaching more of the kids, and I like that. So we're going to move in that direction. But for now, youth group is going to be on site. Our women's ministry is going to be here on site. Um, our first Wednesdays are going to be here on site, but <laughs> we're outgrowing this space already for first Wednesday, so we've got to see what we're going to do with that. But, so we're going to maintain our presence here, our office here. Uh, we're going to move Spanish services to this main sanctuary at 11 a.m., which is a benefit to our Spanish ministry. They now meet at 2 p.m., which is not an optimal time. So this allows them to move here into this space as well, so we anticipate some growth for them in that. And... Uh, you know, here's what I would say to you. Like Jonathan, we've stepped out in faith, and uh, God's directed us in this, in this. and we, our hope is that uh, you armor bearers will join us in this, that you'll recognize, yeah, this is what the Lord is doing, and we're committed to joining in the fight. Uh, and here's what that means. I mean, there's, there's crawling up the, 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 the hill on our hands and knees involved. We need 40 people to serve uh, setting up from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. We need 40 people to serve breaking down uh, from 12.30 p.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, and so we're going to have sign-up sheets available for you, and I just pray that as the Lord moves upon your heart, you would commit, hey, I'm going to do this. This is what God's called me to do. I had a conversation, Jay the barber cut my hair uh, this week, and uh, and I was just talking to him. Jay's a friend of mine and um, cuts great hair, by the way. He's in Jay's barbershop there, Sun City. Anyway, uh, no, I was talking to Jay about this and just filling him in on what God's doing. And, and he said, man, I'd really like to be involved. And he was kind of talking to me about it. And I said, you know, you could, you could bring your son, Seth, uh, with you for, for setup. It's a great time. And he thought, he goes, man, I want to do that. I can bring my boy. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, and just hearkening back to the years at, at Calvary Chapel Menifee where we would set up and it was such a bonding time and so incredible for all of us. And so, so this is completely, you know, what we can do together. If you've got a young son, bring him out. A young daughter who wants to serve, bring her out. Uh, this is a time where God connects us together. People are going through stuff. We, we stop and we, we pray for one another. And, and these are some of the sweetest memories of what, uh, what God has done over the years. And so, uh, so this is, this is uh, our need here. Um, we, uh, we also, even though ultimately this is, this is going to be saving us money, uh, in the beginning, um, there's an investment involved. I mean, we've got, we have to do double duty for a period of time because we've, we've got this facility lease. Uh, ultimately we're going to pare down and just keep a, a couple of suites here. But for the first six months, we've got our entire facility here that we have to pay for while paying for that. And so there's an investment there. 
Uh, there's investment in the equipment uh, that we need to purchase for starting up uh, that. And so I would pray just that, y- that you would pray uh, over and above. And you know, guys know I don't talk about money. So this is, the, you know, you, I'm, I've got, uh, you know, some credibility here with you in that regard. Uh, I'm not characterized by begging you for money. But if the Lord uh, has given you the, 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 the means, if you're able to give over and above your tithes to help with some of these expenditures, uh, and that's just between you and the Lord, we would greatly appreciate that uh, as well. Um, let me close with this. A missionary society wrote to David Livingston, and they asked him, have you found a good road to where you are? David Livingston ministering in Africa. They said, hey, have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to know how to send other men to join you. And he wrote back this now famous reply. He said, if you have men who will come only if they know there's a good road, I don't want them. I want men that'll come if there's no road at all. And that's, that's, that's what we're asking you. Can you be an armor bearer? And can you be willing to go where there's no road? Here's, here's the deal, and we bring this to a close with this. Saul was a guy who needed a good road. Jonathan was a guy who didn't. So my question to you is, who do you want to follow? And who are you going to be?